A couple of years ago, I moved to a village in rural Victoria. On the surface, it's a pretty typical country town. Leafy streets, quaint buildings, weekend tourists, and the occasional goat riding shotgun in a Volvo. But it didn't take long for me to discover something strange about this place, an undercurrent of unusual activities. People here have skills. They make things from scratch. They grow carrots, hunt rabbits, tan hides and make shoes. They carve wood, weave fibre and ferment just about everything. Families have ditched their cars in favour of cargo bikes. Friends forage for mushrooms and weeds. Kids carry pocket knives and catch yabbies. In fact, a 10-year-old boy named Blackwood is my go-to knife sharpener. In this neighbourhood, peeing outside is normal. Shitting in a bucket is celebrated. And showering every other week? That's a bit indulgent. There are men's circles, women's circles, meal trains for new mothers and a runaway gift economy. And turning up to a picnic with salami and cheese you saved from a skip bin makes you a hero. As I weave this word tapestry to describe my beloved town, one woman looms large. Come to think of it, she is the loom a structural support without whom the threads of this community just wouldn't hold together. Her name is Meg. She likes to wear red, and her blunt black and silver fringe is unquestionably the best in the region. Like many of you, I've been following Meg Ullman and Artist's family for years, captivated by their radical disavowal of the status quo. I remember binging their videos in my boxy, south-facing Melbourne rental that was cold as a raven's eye and cost 600 bucks per week. Ironically, the foraging, scavenging, unschooling, non-showering neo-peasants who'd captured my imagination, who had the monopoly on warmth and belonging in a fully stocked larder, were the ones living below the poverty line. You're listening to Resilience a podcast about skills, resilience and living closer to the ground so we don't have quite so far to fall if our fragile modern systems fail us. It's hosted by me, Katie Payne, and gratefully recorded on Jaja Wurrung Country. Today's conversation with Meg Ullman, who I'm now stoked to call a friend and mentor, covers a lot of ground, from growing up Jewish and giving up her car, to forest names, bush kids, menopause and grief. I'm thinking this episode would be great to listen to with a cup of tea. And given that it's a Meg-themed episode, why not try a steaming hot stem tea, which is a very Meg thing to do. She often turns up at a potluck or gathering with a thermos filled with steeping stems of some herb or vegetable left over after the leaves have been plucked, like basil stem tea or pesto pour over if you're feeling cosmopolitan, Parsley stem tea, plantain stem tea, lemon balm stem tea, you get the gist. They're surprisingly delicious and make a strong statement about the sacredness of everything in life, not just the palatable bits, but the tougher, woodier, less popular parts too. Enjoy this magical conversation with Meg Magpie Ullman. I make up songs. That's what I do when I write, I sing. And I was singing a song um, that I wrote about a cricketer because we have turned into a family that likes cricket because Woody plays for Hepburn. Um, and there's a cricketer called Manus Labashane. So I have a little song about him. I could sing it. It's really short. <laughs> <laughs> Manus Labashane, such a lovely name to say. You love cricket night and day. You hit and catch that ball away. Manus Labashane, such a lovely name to say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's certainly one of the most whimsical ways to introduce yourself. I believe you also go by the name Magpie, Meg. Would you mind sharing the story of how the name Magpie came to you? Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. With my partner, Patrick, we facilitate a forest school called Forest and Free. And us and all of the kids have forest names, are invited to have forest names. Not all of the kids do. And... I really wanted an animal that I genuinely, or, or a tree or a mushroom or a plant or something in the forest that really spoke to me. And I tried on swamp wallaby for a while because I just love swamp wallabies when I see them in the bush. 
and they're just so cute and I love that I love how they stop and look at you and I love their roundness I love their dark fur as opposed to um, most of the kangaroos around here but they're solo operators and I'm not a solo operator and I was going for a walk this is a number of years ago and there was a family of magpies just in front of me and I thought I wonder how close I can get before they before I startle them and two of the family members flew off and one was just in front of me and she turned her head and I turned my head and to the side and we were looking at each other and really it felt like she was really looking at me and I was really looking at her and I just felt this instant connection to her ancestors and as though she were connecting with my ancestors and Yes, she's an old-timer and I'm a newcomer to this land, but it felt timeless and it felt that we belonged in that moment to one another throughout time. And so I thought, magpie. And it's similar to my name, Meg. There's something definitely in that. And I come from a family of Collingwood supporters, so there's something about the magpie (laughs) there too. Um, But, yeah, what, what came to me a number of days later was that magpies are the holders of paradox because they are both black and white at the same time. And I really love that. And I can hold many stories at once. And although I'm not a well-practiced holder of paradox, maybe I'm like a juvenile magpie that's a lot more grey, but I feel like I can hold many stories at once. And magpies are also ground hunters and they're close to the ground and me being of short stature, I really feel very grounded and close to the ground and they also um, spend a lot of time with their families and I do too and of course they're songbirds and I feel like I walk this sacred earth with a song in my heart so it is magpie and it's good to be here. That's such a great story. I I heard Patrick's Blue Wren story for the first time too when okay. he was sitting in your position yeah. and it's really special to understand how that's originated and how that how you've been claimed by that particular creature. Yeah. And in our home mm. we we each sleep in different lofts. So I'm at one end of the house, Patrick's at the other and Woody Blackwood is in the middle and I feel like that Woody is this tree and who's got little birds perching, (laughs) nesting in his limbs. So I really like that as well, that we're two birds as parents. Mm. In the forest school, you mentioned that the children are invited to try on or adopt a forest name. What do you see happening to these children, creatures as they do, as they do identify and embrace a local creature or potentially an exotic creature? I don't know, are there any parameters or rules? So the parameters are that it has to be something from this forest that we inhabit. And there's echidna, there's red belly black snake, there's eagle, there's moss, there's yabby, rainmaker. There's a whole, whole bunch of different kids with different names and what I find most interesting is the ki- which kids change their names all the time. Like we'll see a, a brush tail, I'm brush tail. <laughs> or there are some kids who have been coming for years and they still have the same name. I think that's interesting for me. And just that, yeah, just how they inhabit the names and how the name in- inhabits them. And I think it's just like with the totem, it's just this affinity to these animals that just shapes how you look at them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always feel when I see a magpie or I hear a magpie first thing in the morning, especially, it's like, oh, they're welcoming me to the day. Mm. And I might, you know, I, I hear kookaburras, I hear all kinds of birds in the mornings, but it's the magpies that I feel like are speaking to me. Mm-hmm. Can anyone adopt a forest name? Yes. People in the city? Yeah, sure. (laughs) I think especially people in the city. And I love it when the parents of the forest school kids also have um, forest names. So we have Whistling Kite as a mum. There's Pelican, another mum, because she um, lives closer to the coast. And also um, uh, there's Paper Daisy, there's Raven. Anyway, I like it when the parents do too. Yeah, nice. I'm certainly in the fickle forest name club. I change mine all the time. 
as you're speaking about adopting a forest name, Meg, questions are coming up for me around cultural appropriation. Is this an example of that? Has anyone ever accused you of culturally appropriating these practices? And also, too, I'm feeling into this bigger question that is around indigeneity and how much we whitefellas can claim to really belong to places and spaces and be um, connected to country in the way that I know you feel you are and then I'm starting to feel that I am. We all want to belong. And I think to do it in a way that is true to you, it can't be cultural appropriation. I mean, yes, we can look to Indigenous cultures to see how they did it and to see how they're still doing it, but we, can, we can't ever, ever do it, you know, ever belong like that in that same way. It was a number of years ago I heard David Holmgren interviewed um, on a podcast and he was asked, um, the last question was, um, who do you wish that you'd, or who, throughout history, like anybody in the whole world throughout history, who do you wish that you'd been? you know, if you could have been anyone. And he said an Indigenous person to know what it's like to have that deep connection to culture and to country. And that's what we're, I'm not going to say what we're all, but that's what so many of us are longing for. But we can only do it in our own way if it's going to be, I don't like the word authentic, but if it's a, a genuine genuine belonging we each have to find our own way there and it's going to be different for all of us Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah great response I heard you describe yourself actually Meg at David Holmgren's lunch table Mount David and Sue's lunch table one day as a permaculture demonstration person and I love I actually hold on to that as this um, source of inspiration and motivation because I think it is motivating to want to live to want to live our lives in a way that does demonstrate something and does speak of our values and our principles. I would love you to share a little bit about your life, what you love about this permaculture neo peasantry demonstration existence that you have here on Jara Country. I love that I get to live it. <laughs> I love that I get to live my values, um, and that I've made some. I mean, made lots of mistakes. I've made lots of, I've unlearned a lot. I feel like, um, let me backtrack a bit. So I'm going to be 50 next month and I've been thinking about my life and how I feel like the first half of my life I did what I was told. And yes, I was a bit of a rat bag and yes, I questioned a lot, but pretty much the trajectory I was on was what my parents and education system and culture at large wanted for me and then I spent the second half of my life questioning that questioning what I really wanted for myself what I felt was important which is a hard thing to ask when everybody wants to tell you what you should be doing and then unlearning a whole lot of stuff and then deciding for myself what I want to be doing with my time and time has been a major theme for my life because I prioritize time over money and in this culture the dominant culture that's a radical (laughs) differentiation and to do it other to do it the other way like to prioritize money is how I have lived in the past when I was living in Melbourne and working for corporates and and that was just what I did. I didn't question it. But then to question it and to flip it has just been so... Ah, like just a relief for me just to have more time. But the question is what do I love about mm. my life? I love that I get to decide what I do with my time. Mm. And I don't know that many people who can truly say that. I love that I come from a family that knows how to get shit done. And I'm talking about my first family as well as my second family. So first family as in my parents and my sisters that I was always encouraged if I wanted to do something just to do it and also that I can do that in with Patrick and Woody at the moment too. 
that I can, if I want to do something, I can just do it. If I want to start a community group, I can just start one. And that if I need to, yeah, that I, that I can take responsibility for my actions and my time. And that I get to be accountable for all of the things that I do, for all of my mistakes if, and for my actions. And I don't want to outsource I don't want to outsource that. I don't want to outsource that to make my life easier. I don't want to have a car because it's easier. I want to take responsibility for my own movements and my own carbon footprint. And I want to eat meat. So I want to kill the animal myself or know the person who's killed it or know that it's roadkill and that it didn't have a choice. But I would like to take responsibility for those actions Mm. and that feels like a really big I want to say adult decision like those kinds of decisions um yeah but they feel they feel grown up they feel like mature decisions in a culture that is not very mature so to know how to grow up that's been a big a big lesson a big journey for me is how to how to, how to grow up, how to be a grown-up. Mm-hmm. So do you think that question, that questioning nature that you had that you described was there right from the beginning? I'd love to know where you think that originated and then also what conditions were, um, did you find yourself in that allowed that question to really spring up and germinate and actually flourish into the life you lead today? Yeah, good questions. Um, so my family is Jewish and on both sides, grandparents and parents and us, my sisters and I and cousins. And although we grew up in the very Jewish suburb of Caulfield in Melbourne, in the culture at large, growing up Jewish, we were definitely a minority. And I always felt like an outsider, but I loved it. I never felt, I never experienced anti-Semitism. And I always loved that I had a belonging story that was over 5,000 years old and I looked at the skippies, there's like the regular Aussies, and I just felt that they didn't have a story. They didn't have a culture that was meaningful. And even though I'm definitely an animist these days, um, but I believe in God. I believe in many gods. But I've always loved being Jewish. I've loved that connection to something and I, I feel very close with my grandparents who were spiritually and religiously Jewish but I love the food culture, I love the storytelling and it's a belonging story for me so I've always felt comfortable on the margins and yeah that's part of my questioning nature is to because I have an outsider's perspective to the culture I feel comfortable on the outside and I'm also a writer. So I have a a questioning eye, a questioning mind. And my parents always encouraged me to ask questions and my sisters and I. Um, My dad started studying medicine when he was 16. He skipped two grades and then just, you know, head down, bum up, just studied really hard. And my mum also skipped one grade and was both my parents very bookish and having four very creative, not so academic um, daughters, not so interested in academics, but all, all four of us are very creative. And our parents always said to us, whatever you want to do, do it, because you have to love what you do in this world. And so I think to have that permission as, as kids really enabled us to ask questions, how we want to be spending our time. Did you ever spend a chunk of your life in a situation you didn't love? Did you ever feel stuck at any point in time? Not really, no. I mean, even when I was working for corporates, I loved it. You know, I had this, I had bright red over dyed hair, and I'd sit at my desk on a big red bouncy ball, you know, and I was, I just have always had a sense of playfulness about me. And that kind of naivety that you were talking about before in my songs and I cherish that about myself 
just to have that connection to the child, the child, childhood and childish me, um, and that you know the world is a serious place, and I want to take myself seriously, but not too seriously. I'm really fascinated by the points where we we don't listen to that kind of soul calling or the tug at the hem or the compass kind yes. of how how we ignore that and why we ignore that and how we go back to you know right story. Yes. Mm. Um, so before I moved to Dalesford, I was living with my uncle and aunt um, around the corner from where I grew up. And that was a time where I didn't feel stuck. I just felt so full of potential and I didn't know where to put it. And I've always said to myself, so when I, I started keeping a journal when I was 11 years old and I haven't stopped. And I remember I came home from school one day and my mum was writing in her journal. I said, what are you writing? And she told me, what a journal and diaries. And I knew, but just to hear her say it, and she said, well, you could have a journal. And I said, really? Like, I could write about my life and that would be meaningful or interesting, even if just to me. So I've always said to myself, no matter what I'm doing in the world, as long as I'm writing, then that has got to be a good thing. Then those days are not wasted. So that has always felt, doesn't matter if I'm stuck or it doesn't matter if I'm lost because I'm writing and that's a purpose. Mm-hmm. I love that and that feels um, quite validating because I have that sense that I get to live twice as a writer mm. and I am driven a little bit by fear and um, wanting to hoard my own experience at the end of each day, making a note of the key things that happened and um, having a reference that I can look back on and not letting the day slip away and slip through the colander that is my memory. So I, yeah, appreciate what you're saying about that writerly existence and all of those things kind of feeding into the mill Mm. of your own creativity. Yes, the Mm. compost heap. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking of like a sausage um, mincer. (laughs) Yes. I was thinking of stinky compost pile. nicer. (laughs) I want to ask you, Meg, I'm looking at – Nobody can see this, but Meg has bought me today broad bean pod powder, which I'm sure you've never heard of because I've never heard of and I'm not sure anyone has ever made this. Well, I've never heard of it until a couple of days ago (laughs) when I decided to make it. (laughs) And it looks, it's kind of charcoal grey. It's a really fine powder. And when I opened the lid and sniffed it, it is the absolute distillation essence of broad bean smell. Um, I'm really excited to use that at some point, maybe over dinner tonight. But it's made me wonder what your what your food philosophy is and also then how you give it such a creative twist. Well, when I eat at home, I'm a locavore. When I eat out, I call myself an opportunivore. <laughs> um, but at home, we eat very simply whatever is in season – whatever I can forage, whatever I can buy from our local food co-op, it's pretty limited. So I think you have to be creative. And I didn't even, I mean, I knew that you could eat broad bean pods just because I know that they're not toxic, but it never occurred to me that you could eat them until, was it last week or Mm. the week before Mm. that we were having lunch at at Meliodora? And Beck had suggested to Sue, because we were having broad beans for lunch, that she pour olive oil and some salt and pepper and some spices over the pods and bake them and they were good they weren't delicious they weren't so delicious that I thought oh I could make I'd like to make them again um I'd, I'd like to eat them again or make them at home so they weren't that good but I thought I it does feel like a wasted resource because they're so big the pods so I I do love drying and grinding things I do have loads of different powders at home that I like to experiment with so I ground the pods first in my um, food processor, just quickly blitz them and then put them on trays in my dehydrator and then back in the food processor just to grind them up really fine. So it sounds like a big, long process, but it actually wasn't. Mm. Um, And, you know, for people who grow broad beans um, or fava beans, as they're called in the States, um, that once you've uh, taken, once you've shelled, taken the, um, the beans out, that the pods turn black. And so that's why the powder's black. So in the dehydrator, it's, mm. it was completely black. At first mm. I got a fright when I opened it and I thought, oh, no, it's turned. And then I thought, of course, it's, yeah, it's oxidised. Do people die with broad bean pods? 
Like, um, oh. not Carket. Yeah, D-Y-E? Yes, yeah, D-Y-E. I don't know. Hmm. be good to find out. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm very excited and intrigued. Um, and that also ties into a question I wanted to ask you about, like, weird shit you do in your life that um, isn't weird at all to you. It's probably completely invisible and completely normalised in your household culture. But the kind of aspects of your existence or habits that could be seen as kind of odd or weird or feral by, you know, the mainstream population? I think I live in such a permaculture bubble that I think nothing, this is all normal. But I know that when we have um, family come to stay or that we go to families, to stay in families' houses, it's like, oh, you still use toilet paper? (laughs) So things like that. So we don't use toilet paper. We shit in a bucket. We wee in a bucket, a different bucket. Um, we don't shop at supermarkets, we don't drive cars, we don't fly. Um, Woody doesn't go to school and I don't care if he ever reads and writes. I feel like that's really quite radical to say that. He is having lessons with Peter O'Mara, um, literacy, and he's really excellent. He didn't start reading or having lessons until he was nine and he's 11 now. We waited for him to be interested, to show interest um, in having classes. And I really loved that he he had this ecological literacy first and that was really our priority before reading and writing literacy. And I really loved the oral culture. I feel like that's that's such a gift just to be able to speak and to listen and to really listen because you don't know how to read something. Um, yeah, I, I feel like that's, that's very powerful. Um, what else? I feel like a freak when I go to Melbourne. Um, I have my hair is uh, lots of white in it um, in amongst the, the dark brown and when I hang out with women my own age, they all dye their hair in Melbourne. So even that, it's like, wow, why are you dyeing your hair? Mm. It is, the white is, mm. is so powerful. This is your wisdom years. Mm. Um, but that's, that's my thing. And, you know, they're all on hormone replacement therapy. And, yeah, that's, that's, that's for them. That's not for me. But I still feel, um, yeah, I feel like a freak amongst them. Mm. A beautiful silvered freak. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I love it. Mm. I, it's I splendid. Really, it's yeah, glowing. Yeah. A couple of questions about what you listed there. Do you have a Teflon colon, which is why you don't need to use toilet paper? Do, do they just slide right out and you have the correct squatting position and it just pinches off? Well, that, or do you have a substitute? <laughs> well, that is actually part of it. So when I have found that when, so we live below the poverty line, this is another thing, that we live below the poverty line and I think we live like royalty and we have pretty much a 100% organic diet and that's because we go without a lot of stuff as well. So we can save our money and spend it on good food when we need to buy food and feel very fortunate that we have an amazing food co-op in our town so... um, uh, low-income families like ours can afford to eat um, good, such good food. Um, but I have found that when I eat our normal diet, because we're all squatters um, in our family, so we have a compost toilet system and we can sit on it or we can squat on it. And so when you squat and you have a good diet, then the, food, the poo just sort of does come out. Um, and I do know that when I go to a potluck dinner and I have too much cake or have you know foods that I wouldn't ordinarily eat it does my poo does stick a little bit more Uh, we also use family cloth instead of toilet paper which we've been using for about five and a half years now which is just little pieces of uh, it's an op shop um, flannel sheet that we've cut up into uh, rectangles and this is our second lot our first lot completely deteriorated um, and both times it's been some kind of gift exchange that somebody has been in with us to um, overlock the sides. And so recently one of our forest school um, mums gave us a new batch um, mm. of cloth with overlocked sides. Mm. Thanks for explaining that. Um, but one more bit of clarification. Do you use pieces that then are washed? Yes. Okay. So we, we for those who've had kids and done... Um, cloth nappies it's the same kind of thing you just 
Well, for that, it was a little bit harder because there's poo in the nappy. So we just, we, when um, Woody was in nappies, I would just um, scrape the poo into the composting bucket and then cover it with sawdust and then just throw that in a throw the nappy in a bucket and when the bucket was full I would wash them in a hot wash and so we do the same so a bit of cloth we stick it in a bucket when the bucket is full then we just hot wash it so our washing machine goes up to about 90 degrees and we have solar power and we have water tanks so it just feels like this makes sense for us if we didn't have those things if I had to wash it by hand then I think then I would be using newspaper like Sue and David do here or I would be growing heaps of mullein or some other plant. Lamb's rear. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Lamb's ear or cowboy's toilet paper, something like that. Yeah, okay. that, I, that would be, um, yeah, abundant. Mm. This is a really cool thread that um, this brown string I want to keep tugging on because in a parallel life I'm a door-to-door composting toilet saleswoman and – I think that closing the poop loop is just, it's this radical, simple and radical act. And I know that the stumbling block is regulation and how you do it in a smaller space. So you're on a quarter acre yep. in, a, in a town. Yes. How do you compost your shit? So when we, so ours was a regular flushing toilet that we had. And then we took that out and we were deciding what kind of, before we took it out, we were deciding what kind of compost toilet system um, we wanted to install and we wanted to install ourselves. So we didn't want to pay $15,000 for an EPA approved one that's just not in our budget. It's not something that I want to save up for. So it is in our budget. This just doesn't interest me. And so we were thinking, would we drill out a hole in the floor and then have a wheelie bin system that a lot of people do? And I really wanted something that was easy and that I could do myself and that I, I could lift up the bucket when it was full and that it wasn't going to be some huge shit bucket, that it was just going to be um, manageable for me to do, that I did, wouldn't have to rely on Patrick to lift it. And so we just have, it's like a 40, 30 litre bucket, I don't know, a biggish kind of bucket. Um, and, um, it just, we probably once a week we have to empty it and we have on the south side of our house, on the cool side, we have these compost bays. So we wet the previous, whatever is in there, like the substrate of of compost. And then we, are you wanting this much detail? Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Because I just feel like, how do we crack this? How do more people get on board? Because it isn't. It isn't easy psychologically yes. and it's also not supported. As you mentioned, there are options that are really expensive that are the approved ticked options and yes. then there's kind of nothing. Yes. So I think the detail is really good because yep. how do people go rogue and adopt this system for themselves if yes. they're interested? Yeah. Um, so on our YouTube channel, we do have a very extensive video, like Excellent. a how-to video. Okay, how we... I'll link that. Okay, great. Mm. Um, so we tip the, um, the, the fresh bucket in there and I would have collected before a whole lot of comfrey leaves or yarrow leaves. So do a layer of that because they act like a compost conditioner and then put some straw down or some broken up leaves or some kind of carbon. And the way it was told to me was if you imagine a bird in a tree doing a poo, down the bottom is a whole lot of leaf litter and then there's this tiny poo. Well, that's how much the leaf litter is carbon, the poo is the nitrogen, that's the percentage, heaps and heaps of carbon, a little bit of nitrogen. So we put heaps of, um, of broken down leaves or, um, or straw or whatever carbon we've got on hand, shredded newspaper, something like that, and then we wet it. And then it has to be very wet. So you need the air aeration, you need carbon, nitrogen and the moisture. And, of course, the Human Your Handbook is a really fantastic resource for those wanting um, to do a deep dive into the composting um, Mm. of Human Your. It's a a really great book. It wasn't until we started composting our own poo. Now, we've always been pretty good composters, but it wasn't until then that the compost has just been so good because it's already been composted in our guts, of course. Um, But one, one, probably the most important thing that I want to say about Human Your is that it was my own shit and composting it that really started my belonging to this land. And it wasn't until I started putting my waste 
into it, if you can call it waste. Of course, it's a very useful thing. Um, but it wasn't until I started composting my own poo and then using that on my garden many months later, of course, when it all broken down, and then planting the seeds of a plant in there, watching it grow and eating it, and then composting my own poo and just sort of being part of that cycle, as you say, closing the poop loop. But it wasn't until I started we started doing that that I I thought, wow, I I belong to this land and this land belongs to me. And of course, I'm sure lots of people are going to say, you can't say that as a, a white person, but I can say that. I can say that I belong to a piece of land in, you know, in the Wendell Berry sense when he talks about belonging because I've, I've, it's those intimate, that intimate belonging. It's not an ancient, deep, thousand-year-old belonging, but it's a short belonging and it's the first tiny step of belonging. Mm -hmm. And that's been really important for me just to take that step Mm. and to take that shit. (laughs) Take a shit. (laughs) I was thinking as you spoke that we can either pontificate or participate and we often pontificate about what we should or shouldn't do or should and shouldn't say or what's right, what's wrong, attaching this kind of um, intellectual, you know, tag to things. But when you start participating like that, that's when you observe, you observe that you are a creature in a system and you interact like a creature in a system and you actually see the ramifications of your actions. You see the limits of, you know, you see the limits of what you um, need and what your system can provide for you. And that starts a really important um, caretaking Mm. cycle, I think. Yes. So less pontification. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned when you go to the city, um, Freaky Meg in the big city and your friends on HRT. And I did want to ask you in this conversation about menopause and your approach, how you're approaching menopause and what you might speak to in that sense for other women who don't have a kind of sacred structure around that time Mm -hmm. or have any sense of an alternative beyond hormone replacement therapy Mm -hmm. and just being kind of angry for 10 years or Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever it is. Like, how are you approaching this time and um, what's your what are your thoughts on the matter I'm approaching it very humbly I feel like this is such a new realm and new territory and a new phase of my life so I'm perimenopausal at the moment so I'm still bleeding Um, and I it first dawned on me that something was brewing something new was bubbling away when I started obsessing over catching up with older women like just I was I started collecting older women is how I put it and I have a collection and it was I needed to see I needed to be with these women it's like what's going on here it just felt like it was out of my control and then my period started changing and then I realized that what was happening and that I was needing to be with older women to see how they age and I feel so lucky living up here in the hills that we have so many amazing older women um, and that I have some yeah, very special older women in my life to, to look up to and just to see just a, you know, a couple of decades ahead of me um, how they're ageing and how they're approaching ageing and elder, eldering and eldership. And, yeah, that was... A, that was so I guess the first thing I, if I were to give advice, um, would be who in your, do you have anyone in your life who you admire how they're aging, and hang out with them, and what what a great resource to have people like that in our lives, and I'm a, a very avid reader and researcher, so I started reading heaps about perimenopause, from the HRT path to the do nothing path and sort of everything in between. Um, what what exercises we could be doing to support our bodies, what herbs we could be taking, um, what f- foods we should be eating or avoiding, all these kinds of things. And I also feel like this is a real time, yes, there's definitely fire and anger and sleeplessness and all of these things are, are coming up, um, but I feel like it's a real time of reckoning and it's where we really need to, well, I, first person, I really need to look at how 
what my life has been so far and what needs to change going forward and what I can change now and what things I can put in place so those changes can happen in the long term. And I feel like already because I've made choices and made mistakes, so I'm already as much as I can living my life according to my values, that that's a really big first step. And I know for a lot of women, um, particularly women in the city who I know, who aren't on that path at all, they're still in the first part of their lives, I see, as doing what they're told to be doing. Um, that is really tricky, I think, to be going into the second half of your life without having really thought for yourself, what do I want to be doing? What's really important to me, how I want to be living? So I'm very grateful to Meg before to have made the choices that she had. So I feel like this part, it's, 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 um, it's an adventure. Growing old is, it's challenging and it's hard and already at nearly 50 things are changing in my body. It's like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. And I just need to, you know, change what I can and get used to what I can't. And just, yeah, a great lesson in impermanence and acceptance. Mm. Are there any particular bo- books or podcasts or resources that you have fallen in love with to guide you through this time? Uh, of course, there's Susan S. Weed, her book on um, menopausal journey. Um, and a number of years ago, I listened to this terrible podcast, which I found so useful. Um, I'm embarrassed to say its name is called Beyond Bitchy. Do you know it? <laughs> no. Oh, it's called Beyond Bitchy and it's about boundaries, setting boundaries and all the different boundaries, like there's listening boundaries. So sometimes when I hear something, it's like, I'm so upset by that. Or if I read a comment in, you know, online, then that, that upsets me. That's a, you know, a visual, I need to put up a visual boundary. There's so many different kinds of boundaries. And I found that really helpful. Um, yeah. And, you know, the re- there's food resources there's a lady called um dr mindy uh who has this really cheesy um youtube channel she's a um she's like a footy coach kind of doctor who's all about she's written a book called how to fast like a girl or fast like a girl i think it's called and yeah so she talks about the different kinds of intermittent fastings we should be doing throughout our life but how that changes in our perimenopausal years so i found that really helpful um, yeah, and a book uh, by Frances Weller called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And yeah, just for me, that, that grief journey and coming to terms with the, you know, grieving as a way of letting go, as a way of being able to move forward, I felt like that book was really, has been really central to my, my growing up story. Mm. Thank you for providing the perfect segue into the next question that I really enjoy hearing your response to. I want to ask you about for crying out loud. What is it? <laughs> Could you please describe for crying out loud and um, why you see that's that as important in this community? For crying out loud is a women's a monthly women's circle. And we meet in the forest and we sit on low, humble logs around a big blazing fire. And usually Patrick or Woody lights the fire for us. And we share stories. We, we cry. We dig deep into our emotional composts. We ask hard questions of ourselves. It's really soul work. And in it's it's a conversation with ourselves it's a conversation with the other women there so the protocols are that it's not an advice group we don't fix we don't help each other as in by offering advice it's a listening and witnessing circle and I call it witnessing so w-i-t-h witnessing because we're we're doing it together we're witnessing ourselves and we're witnessing one another and It's also a conversation with the dominant culture because the dominant culture is a machine and as Paul Kings North says, you know, it's the machine world and the machine world 
doesn't want us to have a soul. What does the machine world want us to do? It wants us to be binging out on Netflix, having food ordered in, you know, feeling really shit about our lives. It doesn't want us to be empowered, you know, howling together joyously, crazily in the forest. Um, so I feel like it's also a conversation to what is what is what is happening outside the forest and what's happening, you know, in the culture at large, in the broader culture. And this is us reclaiming our animal selves and our creaturely female, just, yeah, it's just rich, juicy soul work mm. and I love it so much. And I was a part of um, two other women's circles before um, for crying out loud and one of them we met inside and that just it was in someone's home and I loved it but it just didn't have what I was looking for and the other one was um, outside and there was crystals and tarot cards and also wasn't what I was looking for but I definitely learned a lot from both those circles so for crying out loud um, it stemmed from a motherhood circle that we had for uh, a local woman, Marta, who's since not local anymore. She's since moved to the coast. And um, so that was five and a half years ago. And, yeah, we, we gathered for Marta's circle and it was just so beautiful and so powerful. And all of us said to one another afterwards, like, we should do this more often. It's like, you know what? We should. And if no one else is going to start it, I'm going to do it. And I'm so glad. It's such a beautiful coming together and I look forward to it every month. Mm. And we all used to, well, me in particular, we used to cry with my head down, you know, sobbing embarrassingly, saying, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm crying into my hanky. And now I cry with my head held high. It's like there's some magical kind of alchemy when our tears hit hit the earth mm. there's something that happens it just feels like it's reciprocal mm -hmm. yeah it is a very magical circle with the hawthorns and the fire mm. and our bare feet on the ground yes and surprisingly and not too many bloodsuckers yes. not too many mosquitoes <laughs> no. daring to sup and also at this particular circle that the men meet there fortnightly the children we meet with the kids there weekly and then the women monthly it just feels like there's so many, and we have the winter solstice, annual winter solstice gathering at that circle mm. too. It just feels like it's a, that forest is alive with the stories of this community. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking about how men's circles and women's circles and grief circles and storytelling and singing, how these represent really potent and powerful forms of activism in a way because obviously that thread of activism is running really strongly through your life but um, in these more kind of whimsical or cosmic um, and subtle spaces it can be harder to explain why they're important, why they're the work of our times and obviously they don't need to be the exclusive work but I'd love you to make the connection between these practices and this, this gathering and these technologies of village building and connection how, why that matters in this, this context of crisis and emergency and everything has to change yesterday? I think they matter any time, whether there's crises happening or not. It feels like they, they feel this is the work because this is the human work and the human experience, the human work is to... Is to belong to our experiences and to express our experiences and whatever needs to happen so we can express them then that's important so whether there's wars happening whether there's pandemics or whether there's you know a thousand nights of weddings and joyousness we still have to express ourselves and because if we don't then that's when we become discontent and that's when we become unwell. And I want to live in a world where there are loads of forest schools and there are loads of, of grief circles and, and different community groups 
and different village rebuilding activities happening because that's that makes sense for me. Mm-hmm. So that's where I give my time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the explanation of why grief needs to be witnessed and how that can be transformed and how when it's suppressed, um, you know, shitty shitty things happen. That's what I find tricky to, to broach with people, but perhaps it is as simple as having those spaces or initiating them in your community if they aren't already there and letting that process kind of work on people however it will. Mm. Because I know there are some people who I've talked to about for crying out loud and they've said, oh, no, I could never do that. You know, like my grief is a private thing. And I understand that because I used to be like that too. And because I'm very good at crying and I always have been, I've, I've always hidden that that gift that I am a good crier because I was embarrassed because who wants to it makes people uncomfortable when you cry in front of them but when you learn to cry proudly it's yeah it 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 shifts things it shifts things it has shifted things in myself definitely and that's okay if it's not for everybody but for me, when I have bottled things up in the past, it hasn't been good for me. I want to change tack a little uh, as we come to the end of the conversation. I'm really, really curious to ask guests of this podcast how much attention you pay to the um, the degradation or the unravelling of the systems that we have currently, our modern systems and society. Is that a focal point of your life? Are you... Are you concerned about what's kind of coming down the pipeline or is that something you've, um, you know, cast aside, made some kind of peace with? Like how are you reckoning with the future, whatever that might look like for you? Yep. Great question. Um, they're all great questions. But I feel like I reckon with the future every day and I, I love Woody not going to school, for example, and I love having him at home. I love not having to outsource his education um, to people who I don't know, whose values I don't know, you know, to a system whose values I don't like. Um, I love that he's at home. I love that he um, can be part of this forest school, that he is surrounded by a community of other kids who also don't go to school. And that's so much in the present tense for who he is and the joy for all of these kids but of course it's future-proofing because I spent the first half of my life doing what I was told which which relegated me to having no skills and I do not did not want that for my child at all so I wanted him to be so skilled going into his uncertain future so you know that's a big part of it that you know we the skills that we need and the skills that future generations are going to need are skills that we've always needed. Um, conflict resolution and herbal medicine and, you know, what does a, what does a post-collapse world look like? You know, it looks like, for me, it looks like systems are broken and we need, you know, this is where community sufficiency really comes to the fore and how we get along with people is huge and how we can get along with ourselves and trust is a really big one can we trust ourselves can how do we build trust with people who's who we might not necessarily like or get along with or so we call where we live our small lane we call it um, an unintentional community because it's with people who we didn't choose, but here we are all lumped together and how are we going to get along? And it's a beautiful experiment. Um, we had a neighbour um, come over today to say if we need help putting fr- uh, nets on our fruit trees because he'd like some help and I'm babysitting tonight for some other neighbours at the end of the street. You know, we all just sort of find our way to, um, to get along with each other. Um, so I do pay a lot of attention to the future and the systems that are collapsing. Um, But I've also spent with Patrick the last, I don't know, nearly two decades, you know, pretty much our whole relationship future-proofing 
our lives. So when the pandemic came along, it was like, oh, you know, here we are. This is actually, we're going to be okay. And not in a kind of selfish, we're fine and no one else is. It's like, okay, we're pretty good. Now, how do we be of service to other people who aren't so good? And having that time as as well, as I was talking about in the beginning of the podcast, as having time to be of service and time to to be able to reflect and to think about what are the skills we need, hard and soft skills, what are the the values that that I want to help help instill in my child and the, you know other other kids around me. I feel like that's something that I want to give my time to. Mm, mm. What are the things that you that have allowed you to reclaim your time? Not living with a car. Is, has been huge um, because it costs so because much. It costs so mm. much. Cars cost so much. Whether it's petrol, whether it's servicing and registration and parking fines and all of that stuff, it just adds up. You know, when I have to get my bike serviced, it's you know, it's some jars of fermented food that I exchange <laughs> with a neighbour, as opposed to you know, like twelve hundred dollars. A friend recently had to spend on getting some seat, not some seams, some like um things on the side of his car fixed it's like wow that's a lot of money so that definitely living without a car and of course when you live without a car you're much more mobile you're out in all weather so you're fitter you're hardier you're much more present to the world um so there's that's a really good trade-off in my mind I think it's just living without a whole lot of stuff you know not having any monthly subscriptions that feels like a really big thing to say but it's like when did all this stuff when did people have start getting all these monthly subscriptions not having a credit card you know trying to get out of debt um that just felt like that was a big journey um but just really prioritizing time which means being much more active and much more engaged and are there any other resources or workshops or fun flavors or colors that you would want to share with people listening as, as kind of recommendations or things to indulge in or imbibe if they're curious about your way of life. As a family, we're involved in our local repair cafe and I feel like we have so much stuff, all of us, <laughs> even us neo-peasants, we just have stuff that we've just collected. Yes, we may have bought it secondhand, but we still have a lot of stuff. And to be able to fix things I feel like is just a really great skill and to know people who can fix things and repair cafes I'm sure most of your listeners are across it but just in case you're not um, it's a global movement of volunteers who get together usually about once a month um, in their individual towns and we have a Dalesford repair cafe and there's a people they have teas and coffees and people donate cakes and it's gold coin donation to have something fixed and they have electrical fixes they have um people who do um sewing machines and darning and um they also have someone who mends broken hearts yeah so i sit there with a at a little table with a sign saying mending broken hearts and you know patrick um, sharpens knives and tools and chainsaws and secateurs and woody has his soldering iron um, and he had a, in fact, he was using that soldering iron today. He had a, uh, a torch that was broken. And, you know, as I was getting my bike to come here, he was inside soldering. And then he said, I fixed it, mum. And then he turned it on and it worked. It's like, wow. But no. he really should be reading and writing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's exactly what I want for my kid is to, you know, and for, for myself as well. And for all of us, like, how do we look after the things that we already have? How do we look after the people, the animals and all of life, animate and inanimate? Mm, beautiful, Meg, as a big, ugly truck <laughs> roars past on the road. <laughs> it's been so, so wonderful chatting with you today. You really brought the the energy and the fizz mm. thank you thanks katie mm. great to chat there are more links than you can poke a stick at in the show notes including meg and artist's family's writings videos and creations so go there click one at random and spend the next 10 years applying it to your life in other administrative news, I haven't quite decided on next week's episode yet so get excited for a mystery interview with someone magnificent
That reminds me too to thank everyone who sent feedback on the first instalment of Resilience with Dave Pollard, as well as your dream guests and topic requests. Interacting with you all like that makes this podcast feel spine-tinglingly collaborative, like a beast we're feeding and grooming and saddling up to explore new terrain together. If you already like where Resilience is taking you, I'd be absolutely chuffed if you shared it with friends, family, or jaded work colleagues. You can also leave Resilience stars on Spotify or a review on iTunes, which adds to its legitimacy and also the likelihood that I'll keep on going. Because unlike a growing number of sovereign and self-motivated bush kids, I still kind of get a kick out of gold stars. Thanks for listening. Reskill you later.